This is Unearthed, a podcast brought to you by the WBRU News Team. And I'm your host, Audrey Kim. So what actually happens when you report a sexual assault on a college campus? A recent Brown graduate takes us through her trying experience with the Title IX process. Here's reporter Carolyn Paletta. Year after year, studies of American universities have produced the same shocking statistic. One in five women is sexually assaulted while in college. But out of the hundreds of thousands of college students who experience sexual assault, the Department of Justice estimates that over 80% never report their assailant to the school or to the police. Miriam Langmoen is a recent graduate of Brown University, and she's one of the few students who took formal action against her assailant in college. When she reported him to the school, Miriam felt confident that she was making the right decision. But the hearing process turned out to be much more difficult than she expected. I'm now, like, (laughs) finally in therapy. Sort of the general consensus among the providers is that my PTSD is caused not so much by the fact that I was sexually assaulted as by the fact that um, I had to relive it over and over again for a year in increasingly harsh, hostile, and clinical settings. It's like beyond doubt the single most harmful thing I've ever done to myself. Miriam says she was sexually assaulted at the end of her freshman year, in May of 2014. She had gone on a date with a boy earlier in the week, and it went well. So that Saturday, she invited him to her dorm room. I invited him over to my room, um, and we had sex. But then after we had finished, um, he asked if I was up for a second round, and I was like, no. And then he just, like, would not take that no for an answer. She says he kept pressuring her, ignoring her clear refusal. Uh, He kept nagging. Uh, Come on, come on, come on. Um, And uh, he started sticking his fingers in me, and I was like, stop. And he was like, come on. And I was like, stop. I didn't freeze in that sense of the word. I didn't panic. I was just sort of very rationally thinking, like, okay, I've said no, what, like four, five, six times. He's not listening. I don't know what he's going to do. You know, like I've thought through like what's going to happen if I am attacked in like a back alley or like at a party if someone tries to grope me. And in, 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 in all those scenarios, I've been, you know, super violent. Like someone attacks me and I just like key them in the face, you know, like I, you know, like I had like a battle plan, you know, but I, I like did not have a battle plan for just being in my freshman dorm, curled up on my side, just like saying no repeatedly to this boy who just like would not listen. Eventually, to protect herself, she did what he asked. I kept being like, I just want to go to bed. I just want to sleep. I just want to go to bed. I'm sorry, I just want to go to bed. He kept being like, if you blow me, you can go to bed. If you blow me, you can go to bed. Again, while he's sort of leaning over me and like his finger's still in me, please stop, please stop. So in the end, I I gave him a blowjob and we went to bed. The next morning, Miriam left her room while he was still sleeping. She felt like she needed to get away from him as fast as possible and hoped that by the time she returned to her room, he'd be gone. But he wasn't. Like, that was the moment at which I realized that something was, like, terribly, terribly wrong. Like, I've literally never in my entire life, sooner or later, been as afraid as I was right then. It was just like, I, I walked in and, like, I just went into a complete, complete panic to see him. You know, it wasn't awkward. 
it wasn't the morning after type thing. It was just sort of like, it, you know, it, like my body responded like I was in a room with like a predator. Miriam didn't know what to do. So she met with an advocate from Brown's Sexual Assault Support Center. The advocate, who was a fellow Brown student, explained that if she wanted to take action, she could report him to the police or to the school. At first, Miriam wanted to file a report with the police. She went down to the station the next day to provide a statement. But right as they were about to file her report, a detective told her something that stopped her in her tracks. He asked me if I was prepared to have my picture in the paper. And I said, what? And he said, oh yeah, you know, because of course police reports are, are public records. So, and you know, with all the talk that's been recently about like rape on college campuses, you know, like the Proudest Journal will snap this up like that. You're gonna be contacted by so many people. Your name will be like printed. And I, I just freaked out. Journalists do not publish the names of sexual assault victims without their consent. But Miriam didn't know that, so she withdrew her report. Yeah, I just pulled back my report. I said, I, like, no way. I'm not, I'm not signing it. I'm not doing it. Miriam's attempt to report to the police fell through. But she knew she could still take action against her assailant through the school's Title IX reporting system. So here's a little history on Title IX investigations. Up until 2011, schools weren't mandated to take action when students came forward with complaints of sexual assault. Lynette Labinger is a private practice lawyer in Rhode Island who's been working in higher education law for decades. And she's seen what it was like before schools were required to investigate sexual assault allegations. I mean, if you look back historically, some institutions were so concerned about their perception in the community that they would actively discourage individuals who were sexually assaulted and came with, you know, clear complaints of having been criminally assaulted would encourage them not to go to the police because they wanted to keep it under wraps. And then on the other hand, you have the institutions that basically threw up their hands and said, that has nothing to do with us, go to the police. And if the police didn't take action or sufficient action, you could have both of the students or the student and the faculty or staff member both occupying the same space on campus. There was a clear need for a school-based solution, somewhere between pressing criminal charges and taking no action at all. Students have technically been protected from sexual assault and harassment since the 70s, when Title IX was passed to prohibit gender discrimination in education systems. The problem was that the government had never been clear about what schools should actually do to uphold this protection. The Obama administration changed this. In 2011, they published a letter titled Dear Colleague, which required every school to create an internal investigation process for sexual assault allegations. In the letter, the administration made it clear that if schools refused to comply with the new guidelines, they would no longer be able to receive federal funding. The result was that every school that received a dime from the federal government designed its own mini-judicial system, through which they could investigate complaints of sexual assault and take action against the perpetrator if necessary. As you can imagine, creating a trial system based off of a letter did not exactly ensure the best judicial practices. Some central components of the letter were vaguely worded, which allows schools to have very different interpretations of their meaning. For example, the letter requires schools to take action if quote, a school knows or reasonably should know about student-on-student -student harassment that creates a hostile environment. Here's Lynette again. Well, if you look at the definitions of hostile environment, they are written in subjective, descriptive 
terms, including reasonable person and um, alter the environment and words that you cannot say one plus one equals two. So you can find the same set of facts, the same kind of factual description where one says that's not enough and the other one says that's outrageous. And while there's a clear moral obligation to protect students from sexual assault, the schools are also concerned with protecting themselves against lawsuits. Sometimes the colleges and and universities look at it not so much from the standpoint of what's right, what should we be doing here that's the right thing, as what do we need to do to not get sued? And if that makes it 10 times more complicated to to do it, then that's what we're going to do. Miriam didn't know it as she walked into the dean's office to file a sexual assault complaint. But she was about to find out just how complicated the Title IX process can be. Starting the complaint process was pretty simple. She met with the dean, told her what happened, and the dean confirmed that her complaint was eligible for a Title IX investigation. All Miriam had to do was submit a 1,500-word witness statement describing the assault and provide a testimony. The deans also helped her get her final exams pushed back to the fall so that she could go home early. Miriam submitted the paper and left for summer break the following week. I had no expectations because I didn't know what was going to be needed. I think that's like also a problem with these kind of processes is often people will say, oh, well, but you know, but if you ask for help, we will provide it. But you like don't even know what to ask for. You don't like you don't know what you're going to need. You don't know what the process will look like. Miriam had very little contact with the school over the summer. During the break, Brown notified the student that she accused that he was being investigated by the school for a sexual assault complaint. He wrote his own witness statement about what happened between them and it was submitted into evidence alongside Miriam's. Witnesses were also asked to submit statements. People who Miriam or the accused had talked to about that night, especially those that they had spoken to right after the event occurred, were considered witnesses to the case. Naturally, this meant that almost all of the witnesses were good friends of either Miriam or the accused. Once all of the statements were collected and Miriam returned to school in the fall, the dean set a date for the hearing. It was scheduled for September 26th. You know, I might be breaking a lot of rules now because I'm not allowed to talk about the contents of the hearing, I'm pretty sure. I also have graduated at, like, at this point, give very few fucks. The hearing took place in a room at the Office of Student Life on campus. Everyone sat around one long table, and Miriam describes the setup as a faux courtroom. Instead of a jury, there's a student conduct panel made up of three members of the Brown community who were trained by the school to be in this role. Miriam's panel consisted of a dean, a professor, and a student. Instead of lawyers, each student is assigned a hearing advisor, another member of the Brown community who is trained by the school. And at the head of the table, in place of a judge, is the dean of student life, controlling the procedures. At the hearing, both parties and their witnesses testified and were questioned by the panel members. The, the first hearing was very cathartic for me because it was, on one hand, it was, it was awful, like sitting for seven hours in a room with a person who has sexually assaulted you and like having to describe in details, you know, saying words like, and then he touched my genitalia and I said no again. Like, you know, like to describe it so clinically and just, yeah, no, it was fucking awful. It was a really traumatizing experience. But the good side of it is just that he basically admitted to having done it. One of the biggest complaints about the current system is that cases are often based primarily off the students' testimonies. Evidence and witness statements can be submitted, 
But since what happens in the room is so private, it often does come down to one person's word against the other. And how are you supposed to know whose side of the story is the right one? It's not as difficult as people would think. This is Renee Davis. She's the current Title IX officer at Brown University and is responsible for overseeing every case that comes through the office. She says that usually when you ask two students to describe the sexual activity that occurred, their stories are not as contradicting as you might expect. You know, I, I think that there's this perception that when we have individuals that come forward in a process, that their stories are so opposite from each other and that, you know, you are pitting one person against another person and it's a he said, she said. It's, it's typically not like that. If you ask those individuals to describe their consent practices, you will learn from those individuals whether the behavior was truly consensual or not based on their reporting or their telling of it. Miriam says that at her hearing, her assailant did not deny the story she told. He just didn't interpret his behavior as assault. You know, they, they would ask him questions like, but do you agree that Miriam said that she didn't want to? And he was like, oh yeah, no, she told me several times, but I just, you know, sometimes you just got to ask girls enough times and then they give in. Plenty of women have told me that they don't really want to, but eventually, like, they say yes. And, like, he would say things like that, and it was just very, it made me feel so much more validated in my experience. And it made me also feel very valid in, in reporting him. Like, I was just sitting there thinking, Jesus Christ, it seems pretty obvious that I'm not the only person who's had a really bad experience with this guy. Like, now this seems like a public health and safety thing. After hearing the testimonies and reading the reports, the student conduct panel found him responsible for a Category 3B sexual misconduct, which is assault involving forced penetration, physical violence, or injury. This is the most severe violation that a student can be found guilty of in a Title IX hearing at Brown. Their decision was announced one week after the hearing. The school would suspend him for two years as punishment for his actions. Miriam thought it was over. In the course of a few months, the Title IX process had delivered her justice and promised her a school environment free of her assailant's presence, just as it was designed to. I asked her if she felt that going through the hearing process was worth it. I felt like it was worth it after the first hearing. One, I stopped gaslighting myself. I, I was like, no, like this did actually happen. He's confirming that it happened. I'm like, I am right. Uh, people believe me. Um, knowing that it turned out the way that it did, no. Two weeks after the hearing found her assailant responsible, he appealed the decision. He had not been informed that he had the right to have a lawyer present. Am I the only one who watches like bad crime? Like how, how, how dumb of a mistake can you make? He was granted the appeal and the decision from the first hearing was wiped clean. He would get a new hearing with a new hearing panel and Miriam found herself back at the starting line. You know, I can be angry that he appealed because I wanted him to be like gone from my life and like never have to think about him or interact with him again. But he was completely correct that there were serious procedural errors the second hearing was scheduled for December, but this time it was going to be run differently. For Miriam's appeal hearing, the dean in charge of her case decided that instead of making everyone repeat their original testimony to save time and avoid additional trauma, they would just take the transcript from the first hearing and submit it as evidence into the second hearing. The parts of the testimony that were considered problematic would be removed. When Miriam received a copy of the updated transcript, whole paragraphs of his original testimony had been blacked out. She says that even individual words and sentences had been blacked out, presumably to alter their meaning. 
Well, he was allowed to black out literally anything he had said because he didn't have an attorney. He didn't have an attorney, so all his testimony was invalid. Obviously. I mean, again, I, I just, like, have, you know, have y'all never seen a dumb police procedural? Like, do you not get how this works? Like, I, I even I get how this works. Amidst the confusion of the new hearing procedures, Miriam sought out the protection of a lawyer. When it got to this rehearing thing, I was like, okay, like, I need a lawyer. And I'd asked him before, I need a lawyer. Please, can you, like, can Brown pay for a lawyer for me? I can't pay for a lawyer. And Brown said, no, we can't. And I said, okay, can you help me find a pro bono lawyer? And they say, no, we can't. It wasn't until a week before the hearing that the deans agreed that Miriam needed a lawyer. But they couldn't find anyone who would be available on such short demand. That, plus the fact that the hearing was overlapping with finals, caused them to push the appeals date to the next semester. And all the preparation and anxiety that Miriam had been building leading up to the December hearing date would have to be repeated once again. If you ask me what I did that semester, I can give you like the hearing dates, I can give you the case files, but I was also a full-time student. You know, I also had like classes I was supposed to be doing. I had like extracurriculars I was neglecting. You know, my life was like a fucking shit show. I was in the middle of a depressive episode and Brown did jack shit to help. The appeals hearing was rescheduled for the end of February. Brown found Miriam a pro bono lawyer and just in time because shortly before the final hearing, her lawyer informed her that the accused and his lawyers were threatening to sue her for defamation unless she dropped the case. If I dropped the case, uh, he promised to remain off campus, keep the no-contact order, and also make, and I quote, a sizable donation to the Sarah Doyle Women's Center. Which, you know, like as far as bribes go, like it's not a bad one. (laughs) Miriam asked the deans if she should drop the case. Her own lawyer advised her to drop it saying that it didn't seem worth the risk of a real lawsuit. But Brown told her that at this point in the process, with the amount of information they had from both parties, dropping the case wasn't an option. If, if you don't show up to the hearing, if you don't testify, we're still going to go through with the hearing. We'll submit your testimony from the first hearing into evidence. Brown will proceed with this case even if you don't. Like, the only thing you can do to shut this down now is like to say, like, Actually, I was lying the whole time. But otherwise, we're just going to go through. So, like, he can offer to donate money to the Women's Center as much as he wants, but we're not going to stop it. Schools are allowed to move cases forward without the student's permission. So Miriam had effectively lost control of her own case. The only thing left to do was show up to the hearing and defend her story. The second hearing was set up much like the first, but with the additional presence of lawyers representing Miriam, the accused, and the university. Despite the blacked-out text in his testimony, the student conduct panel once again found Miriam's assailant responsible for sexual assault on March 3, 2015, almost 10 months after she originally reported him. That's the story of my nightmare year at Brown University. Was it worth it? Did you feel like it was worth it? No. No. No, it wasn't. His punishment was shortened to a one-year suspension from the university he would return to campus the fall of her senior year. It was nice not having a man on campus my junior year. And that did a lot for my mental health in ways that I hadn't really expected. And then he was back my senior year, and that was rough in ways I hadn't really expected. I mean, senior year, I was in a better place than I'd been my sophomore year. But I saw him probably once a week on average, if not more often. The first time I saw him, uh, I had a complete panic attack. I mean, you know, he's, he's not dumb like it's not you know it's not like i think like he's gonna attack me on the street like intellectually i know that he's not a danger to me 
but it just means that like every time I am outside or in a public space, I would be sort of looking over my shoulder. Miriam acknowledges that her experience with Title IX was especially bad. But for a school that's had an average of only five Title IX hearings a year since 2011, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable expectation for each student to feel fully supported in this process that they are choosing to undertake. They say, oh, but you know, like all the survivors that come get help without sort of taking a serious and critical look at the fact that, again, there are like four or five reports a year on a campus of 8,000 people. That's ridiculous. Like, what's wrong? What's wrong and are we doing literally everything we can to stop it? You know, I, I don't think reporting is necessarily right for all survivors, and I think that's fine. But it's right for more than, like, five survivors a year. Like, that's pathetic. Sexual assault is still widely underreported on campuses. In 2014, the same year that Miriam reported her assault, 91% of colleges in the U.S. had zero reported incidents of sexual assault, according to data from the Department of Education. So, despite her experience with the Title IX system, Miriam says she would never discourage a survivor from reporting. You know, I can say that, like, you know, for statistical purposes, I think it's important that Brown, like, knows how prevalent this actually is, like, that they, like, these numbers aren't hidden. For, like, anyone who is, like, willing and able to report, I think that is important. But I, you know, I just have every understanding in the world for why that can be too difficult of a hurdle for people. Because, again, if I had known that my case would turn out the way it did, I wouldn't have done it. The Title IX system is a catch-22 for survivors. It's the only way for them to remove their assailants from campus and feel safe again, without having to give up the significant time and money that a criminal case requires. But as Miriam's story shows, entering the hearing process exposes survivors to the possibility of even further trauma. So, yes, having Title IX is better than having nothing at all. But is this really the best we can do? for the 20% of female college students who identify as survivors of sexual assault. This episode is brought to you by the WBRU News Team in Providence, Rhode Island. Special shout out to Ellie Morimoto, Elise Hart Kipnis, John Klein, and Chris Bannon for their help. Also, big thanks to Credo Duarte and Alex Stewart for scoring our intro music, and Yashi Wang for our swanky graphics. The mission of Unearthed is to have people talk to one another, so we'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave us your comments on iTunes or DM us on Instagram or email us. Thank you for listening.